Hello, everyone. Fill up your Ramona cups of gloom, copyright Brexit MEP Richard Tice, and raise them for another edition of Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky, and even in this strange, quiet week before the official coronation of Bojo the Unready, there are still <laughs> new developments in Brexit, and we'll be looking at them. Both Gina Miller and John Major have signalled they're willing to go to court to prevent Johnson from proroguing Parliament. Can we rely on legal moves to stall Brexit, and should we? And in a big weekend for protests, with the March for Change coming up in London on Saturday, we're delighted to be joined by two members of the less secretive than they used to be outfit who kept the Remain cause in the spotlight, led by donkeys. We'll be meeting Ben Stewart and Ollie Knowles in a minute. But first, let's say hello to our regulars. Journalist, disinformation expert and commentator Nina Schick is our woman in Brussels and Berlin, sometimes. Today, she is our woman in London. Hello, Nina, how are you? <laughs> Hi, very well. Um, so Brexit was overshadowed this week in the news by President Archie Bunker telling four congresswomen of colour that they should go back where they came from. Was this gut racism, canny electoral racism? Uh, and does it really matter? It does matter. And I think that ahead of 2020, it's going to get even more ugly. I think like last week was another nadir in US politics when you just see how nasty it's going to get. But I think it, even though we know that Trump is a racist, I think there is definitely, if you look at how that tweet was formulated, it's not just Trump, you know, willy-nilly saying something in the middle of the night. I think there's a lot more strategy behind it. And it's a cold, hard electoral strategy to make these four women kind of the face of the Democratic Party, get the Dems to rally around them and understand that for the people who would vote for him, they're so anathema for them that that, that will serve as a point to like bring out the vote for Trump. I think we have a lot lower to go in, in the US, unfortunately. Well, May called it unacceptable. Um, Johnson did not. You focused on a Telegraph story this week that says Trump's trade negotiators have told Britain to fall in line when it comes to Huawei. <laughs> Huawei? Is that right? As the price of a deal. Um, it's, it's sort of criticism of this stuff muted because they're looking ahead to trade deal and, and don't want to kind of... Yeah, but it's... Yeah, but it's absolutely nonsense, right? Like, first of all, sweet sovereignty dictated by Uncle Sam. It's, you know, the sweetest taste of sovereignty. <laughs> Second, it just it's just not going to happen. It's going to take ages and ages and ages. Even if it does happen, it will be largely dictated on the US's terms because when it comes to trade, I think everyone in this room, in the studio can attest size matters. So you're either the bully or the one being bullied. And in this case, Britain will be the one being bullied. And uh, like many Brexiteers' predictions, you know, which have over time all come unstuck, this will be the next one, you know. So it'll be very interesting to see if we're out of the EU without a no-deal Brexit, where exactly we land on that big bumper free trade deal. And <laughs> my bet is it's not forthcoming anytime soon. Also with this is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. Does, um, this is because I've noticed over the last three years that the sort of pendulum swings and some weeks are just like, Britain is the worst. And other weeks are like, no, no, America is the worst. <laughs> Anglo-American friends just have the whole looking nightmare going on their heads all the time. But America is worse this week. Right? Yeah, he's more like Trump is more obscene, I think, than Brexit is. Mm. It's more viscerally obscene. Um, and he's less justifiable. I mean, you can construct arguments for leaving the EU. You can't ever construct an argument to which, you know, Donald Trump is the answer. Um, the trouble is, it's the same old thing we've had always, which is just that ours is not quite as bad, but it's just, it's more core function and it's more boring. Because the thing is, you can, you can get past eight years of Trump, you know, mm -hmm. and just about come out the other side. You know, your, your cultural and moral standards will be powerfully degraded. But nevertheless, you can get out the other side. We're 
fucking with like the engine room of the country, you know, while off our face on nationalism. And so once you, the stuff you do there, that has long term damage that far exceeds the kind of damage that Donald Trump can do. So that's our, our curse is that ours is not quite as bad, not quite as morally putrid, but it's more boring. And ultimately, in the long term, it's actually more damaging to the way the country operates. Your Liam Fox loving, however, from the past few weeks, she's <laughs> had yeah. effect. Steady on. <laughs> with, uh, with Richard Tice. Tice! <laughs> uh, denouncing him as sort of going native. Um, will, will Foxy be joining Remainer now? Has, I, has he seen the light? I suspect not. But it is funny, isn't it? Like watching, watching them sort of manoeuvre around. Like, you know, because you've had this week's, we had Amber Rudd held up for, you know, years as this great centrist hope in the Conservative Party for no fucking reason whatsoever. Suddenly out, out there singing the all singing, all dancing, no deal, no deal song. Um, we've had Matt Hancock, you know, a man who has literally been trying to buy the fridges so he can stop, try and stockpile the medicines. People don't die going, oh, actually, it turns out, you know, as you maybe know, there was a completely fantastic idea. So they're moving in. Whereas Liam Fox, bafflingly enough, presumably partly because, you know, he's not in Boris's camp, has been actually holding firm on a few things. And now, yeah, that leads to the extraordinary spectacle of Ty saying, he's a Ramona too. <laughs> and this is worth bearing in mind, right? Because when, when people are like, oh, maybe you, hear, you occasionally hear Ramona's go like, oh, maybe if Boris Johnson gets it, at least they'll have like a proper Brexiter there. So they can't do what they did with Theresa Mango, where she was a Remainer all along. Don't believe it for a fucking second. They will never, ever own this thing. And it doesn't matter who you put in, whether it's Boris Johnson, they'll say he's a Remainer, just like the rest of them. He's gone native in exactly the same way that they now say that Michael Gove, who was literally one of the leaders of the actual campaign, is a a sort of Remainer Trojan horse. They'll never, ever own it, and they won't own it in that scenario. Well, it's it's funny, because obviously accusations of Stalinism get levelled at certain figures in Labour, but what this reminds me of is Stalinist railing against Trotskyists and mm-hmm. constantly redefining anybody they don't like, whether or not they've ever spoken to Trotsky as Trotskyists. It's like <laughs> proper kind of like mad bunker yeah. behavior. Or like what, or the way that Stalinists talk about the Kulaks, right? Like the Kulaks at the beginning were like the wealthy entrepreneurial peasants. And then when they killed all the wealthy entrepreneurial peasants, they were just the peasants that didn't want to go into a collective farm. And then after a year or so, Kulak just basically meant you're going to die now. That's all the Kulak actually meant. And it's basically that. It's like the word just means you're the enemy. And they'll call a Brexit or a Remainer as soon as they like, as soon as they're in their way in any way. Stalinist Brexit. Brexit Stalinism is amazing. Invention. <laughs> Thanks, Tice. Now let's say hello to our friends and allies led by donkeys. These crowdfunded stealth operatives put embarrassing tweets by senior Brexiters on billboards across the country, pursued Nigel Farage's long march from Sunderland to London with a giant van, <laughs> repeating Farage's various false promises, projected anti-Brexit messages on the white cliffs of Dover, and teamed up with the Hieronymus Bosch of Brexit Britain, Cold War Steve, at Glastonbury. When Donald Trump came to the UK in June, they projected Boris Johnson's unkind words about him onto Big Ben, a reminder of when Johnson had unkind words for Trump. They're very much our kind of people. Welcome to Romaniacs. Ben Stewart. Hey, how you doing? And Ollie Knowles. Hi, thanks for having us. So when you started this, when, when, when would this have been? Remind people. Well, December last year, um, we originally had the idea. We were sitting in a pub in Stoke Newington, passing around a phone with Cameron's no notorious tweet, Britain faces a, um, a, a, an inescapable choice, stability and strong government with me or chaos with Ed Miliband. And we were frankly pissing ourselves with laughter at it and had a conversation about what we could do to make this a tweet you can't delete. Um, and we decided that we would put it up on the billboard across the road. We, we ordered the billboard. It sat in my lounge for several weeks where we did precisely nothing about it. And then um, Parliament came back after New Year and it was like a sort of a hurricane of chaos, you know, hitting landfall. And um, 
Johnson and Rhys Mogg, etc., were on TV um, talking about uh, the the betrayal of May's bill, uh, May's deal, and how it represented vassalage and servitude. And we just couldn't fucking take it. This hypocrisy. You know, <laughs> hang on a second. You know, they were meant to be crumbling before the awesome might of Britain's negotiating position. What's going on here? So we decided to start slapping these things up. I think it was January the 8th. You and I did the first one, didn't we? We started slapping up these things just around where we lived on billboards, you know, with a 90 quid ladder from B&Q and a couple of buckets of paste. Mm. We tried to get you on as guests months ago, but you were, you were being secret squirrels then. Um, <laughs> was, it, was it hard to, to maintain anonymity? And were you braced for the kind of for being outed, I guess, by... Uh, Something like Guido Vaux. Yeah, the anonymity felt like the right thing to start with. We were, um, how should we put it, borrowing the advertising space. It was a, <laughs> a guerrilla. That's, that's a legal term, isn't it? Borrowing. So it, it felt like the right, the right approach. Mm. Uh, I think we always knew there was going to come a point where we needed to shed that and say very clearly who who we are, and that's that's worked very well. And I think yeah, we've not looked back on that decision. It feels good to be able to say who we are, our names, our identities, our backgrounds, and why we believe in this project. Yeah, it's good. the Guido Fawkes log. We're trying to sort of present us as the dark money mirror of the Brexit party's <laughs> kind of um, funding malfeasance. And we had a chat and we decided we wouldn't let them mm. do that. And so we decided to just come out and say who we are. Anonymity worked for us for a long time, but transparency works for us now. Has it made any difference to how you how you operate? Um, it's just nice that friends know we were doing it and they were into it. I mean, that's pretty good. Um, it's actually easier to meet people. Like, we actually, yeah. we met some some anti-Brexit colleagues just before we came to the studio here, and previously we would have had to have turned down that meeting. So actually we can be better allies by meeting people and maybe strategising with other people within the movement. Mm. You know, previously, you know, we had these sort of nom de guerre. I was Richard, you were... I was Adam. Adam, James was Chris, and then oddly, Will was Richard as well. And we had an argument about I was Richard first. We're trying to stop Brexit. We can't even get our effing names yeah. right. Um, yeah. So, no, it's been really nice to open the doors and, and, yeah, facilitate those conversations. And that's what we're busy doing now, really. No more Richards. No. <laughs> um, we'll talk more about the campaign later. Um, do you have something planned for the, for the March for Change on Saturday? The... We don't. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not a huge disappointment. But let's I have nail an entire it. sheet don't. of questions specifically about March for Change. We don't. We are. We've come to the end, as you will know, of a very busy six mm. months, and this whole thing's been run on a on a WhatsApp group, kind of through lunch hours and once the kids are in bed. So there is a little moment here where we're just drawing breath, and we are we are busy plotting and scheming. Right. We're, we hope for a really uh, a big September October, but at the moment we're we are plotting and scheming, and there's nothing on Saturday. You're on, <laughs> you're on your own, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Make your own damn billboards. <laughs> ben and Ollie will be with us throughout the show after these quick reminders from Nina. The March for Chains happens in London tomorrow, Saturday 20th of July, and we're sure you've already got your travel plans well in hand. If you're in two minds about coming, here's a suggestion. Definitely turn up. We need to make sure that there's a massive turnout that even Boris Johnson can't ignore. There'll be a Romaniacs contingent too, assembling at the traditional meeting point of the corner of Curzon Street and Park Lane. And our own Alex Andrea will be treating the best for Britain stage to some of his magnificent oratory. So bring a bouquet. If you need placards for the march, the brilliant Joel Morris and Jason Hazley of Grown Up Ladybird Books and Philomena Kunk fame have created a brand new series of banners that you can download and print for free from our Patreon site. And with luck, our next Ask Romaniacs podcast special will be available to Patreon backers in time for your journey to London. We'll try and get it out by Friday afternoon. 
To hear the extra podcast, sign up to support us on Patreon on the $5 tier or upwards. You'll get an Ask Romaniacs plus every edition of the show at least a day early, mugs, t-shirts, and a weekly column from the panel. Search Patreon Romaniacs or visit our Facebook page to find out more. Thanks, Nina. The old question is back. Can we stop Brexit in the courts and should we even try? Boris Johnson has repeatedly refused to rule out proroguing Parliament to get no deal through, thus destroying parliamentary sovereignty in order to save it. Like a mad-eyed Vietnam general. <laughs> this week, Gina Miller said she'd already written to Johnson warning him that prorogation would be constitutionally unacceptable as well as illegal. Meanwhile, John Major says he'd seek a judicial review saying it would be utterly and totally unacceptable to drag the Queen into a political row. Ian, we, we've done a lot of prorogation on this, on this podcast. Um, does it get normalised by, by still being talked about, by, by not being ruled out? Does people just get used to the idea? Yeah, and I think we should probably stop using the word as well. Um, this is an argument put forward by uh, Joe Mohan, the, the lawyer, who's actually got a third legal fight um, in addition to the John Major one and the Gina Miller one. Um, and he sort of makes this point of just being like, look, if you call it that, then... Well, it's just not true. It's not a prorogation. Prorogation is a completely normal thing to do. You just go, to this is the ending of this parliamentary session, then we're going to start another one. That's completely normal. This is not that. This is cancelling parliament. So the, the most accurate word you could use for it would be an executive coup. I mean, that, that's what this is. So we should call it what it is. We should call it suspending parliament or cancelling parliament. That's what it entails. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it gets normalised by that. And then there's this sort of building attitude towards it um, among the Tory benches, which sort of makes it more likely to happen. I still think, by the way, that it's quite unlikely to happen and that he's quite unlikely to pursue this course. But even if he tries to do it, there are a variety of mechanisms that can be used to stop him. And what would, uh, which I suppose you call it cancellation, um, what happens in that event? Does it is just does everybody just leave the building and legislation stops? What do MPs get up to? Catch yeah. up on paperwork? Well, yeah, okay. So let's can we let's break this down. So I mean, so there's about to be a parliamentary recess for the summer. That's again completely normal. Parliament then comes back in September, and it would then be expected to stick around until the end of September when the conference season starts, and then it would be expected to come back the second week of October after the Tory conference in the beginning of October. That would be the normal scheme of things. And at the moment, the, the later recess isn't booked in, but MPs are scheduled to be coming back in September. So what he could try to do would be to change the recess. You don't need to do any kind of prorogation stuff. You just go, well, we're just going to extend the recess so it covers all of September as well, maybe even covers October. The reason he can't do that is because you'd have to put that motion to Parliament and MPs would vote against it. Prorogation is the only way that he gets to do it using his executive powers. Um, and that involves going to the Queen and saying that I advise, I advise that we now do prorogation. Um, that, I think, will be where the centre of the legal disputes are. Because the argument that will be made is that you're basically saying to the monarch, um, she now has a choice, yes or no, do what the Prime Minister says or don't do what the Prime Minister says. If she does what the Prime Minister says, that is the Queen essentially cancelling Parliament which is not a terribly good look, um, and was once pursued you know, by Charles I uh, about 400 years ago and ended in a not unreasonable way, I think, with us chopping his fucking head off. Um, it would, the other option, of course, is for her to say, well, I'm not going to do what the Prime Minister tells me to do. Now, that is also a completely untenable state of affairs. So whichever way she goes, it would be unacceptable. And the legal case, the judicial review would basically be like, look, it is more sensible for courts to be taking that kind of difficult political decision than it is for the monarch to be taking that kind of political, difficult political decision. And that's one that I could imagine the courts taking it and I could imagine the courts going in their favour. Just about maybe. 
is do you think any one of these uh these cases is more likely to we, be we, taken on or succeed we don't know the details of them yet i mean what we do know is that gina miller's working with lord panic who is i mean that guy's fucking silk basically like that you know that is silky as fuck so that that you know that's that's some pretty good again a legal it. term a legal it's a complex <laughs> legal term um joe Mon was is of course <clears throat> responsible for the case that, that established that we could um revoke article 50 he's an extremely accomplished and intelligent lawyer and we'll be using a very uh, accomplished and intelligent legal team so the, the, these are these are pretty good figures to have on your side I ultimately, I have to say, I think the answer to this thing will be found in Parliament if Johnson tries it. There'd be a couple of ways to do that. The first way would be you just pass legislation the same way as the Vet Cooper thing. They're trying to trying to create some kind of structure where they could do that. Now get the legislation on there, tack things onto it that says you can't do this, you can't, you can't get rid of us. Or the other way would be the sort of more nuclear option of a no-confidence vote. And I think the, the crucial thing that moderate Tory MPs are arguing now with their colleagues is help us come up with these other ways of stopping it. Because if not, the only way to stop it's going to be a no-confidence vote in our own government. Which would have to happen very soon after... Yeah, it would either be... I don't think it would be now because it's too early on. I think that the key point will be when they come back in September. September, That's when the real fight, I think, is going to be. Um, Nina, when Gina Miller forced a parliamentary vote in Article 50, she was branded an enemy of the people um, back in the classic early days of Brexit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Things are sort of more febrile now. Is... Is fighting Brexit in the courts um, risky, even though legitimate? Is that the kind of thing that can be portrayed again as sort of an establishment fix or kind of like a sneaky way to defy the, the will of the people? Oh well, I mean, when Michael Gove, you know, one of the champions of the Brexit cause, is being painted as a Trojan horse for the EU, you can <laughs> damn well bet that any kind of legalistic. Uh, way to try and stop Brexit fighting it through the courts will be portrayed as such. So I think that's inevitable. And I think it's worth mentioning that for people like Gina Miller, who who do take this on, I mean, they do so at, I think, a tremendous personal cost. I think she, you have all met her. I actually wasn't on the podcast with her. But I think she has to have 24-hour security or, you know, her life has become quite complicated since she's taken on this role. My question then is, given that if we assume that for, I don't know, 25, 27% of the people, there'll always be some kind of betrayal narrative, which unscrupulous politicians, you know, the Richard Tices of this world are going to whip up. So they're almost a lost cause, you know, expect that to happen. I'm just interested how far that narrative of resentment can flow into the population. So is it going to be up to 50% of the electorate that will buy into this? Or as we get more and more extreme, will there be a point where decent people will just say, you know, this is unacceptable and we've all lost our minds and we need to have a sense check here? Hmm. That's the, what I think is interesting. The last three years suggests no. <laughs> which, which then would mean... Which, which, decent, Samuel Beckett waiting for <laughs> decent people. Yeah. <laughs> But, but but then in that case, then the next assumption would be that the room for compromise completely doesn't exist anymore. And there's going to be two sides that are hardening. And it will be a kind of all out battle between remain and revoke or no deal Brexit on the hardest terms. And there's no point in even trying to reconcile with those who want no deal Brexit on the hardest terms, because no matter what you say or do, they're never going to be won around. So... John Major was also subject of a hit job. One of Johnson's outriders told the BBC that Major has gone completely bonkers and, <laughs> bearing in mind, one of Johnson's outriders has clearly been driven completely mad by Brexit. Um, 
There is obviously a lot of anger and hatred on the Brexit side, targeted personalities. Ben and Ollie, when you did sort of break cover, did you find, did you get a kind of initial influx of kind of flack or? We we were ready for it. Mm. I received one tweet from a man in a in an ill-fitting double-breasted suit, <laughs> uh, bright blue and white stripes, and he was on a cruise somewhere. And I thought, this is what you've got, I'm ready for it. Yeah. Uh, so actually, pleasantly surprised, very little, but we were ready for it. We he called did, you a parasite. He called me a parasite. Um, yeah, we thought we'd get more, and that's actually, we were, we were a bit nervous about it. It's one reason why we actually were <clears throat> anonymous for a while. There's a few reasons why we were anonymous. One of them was that um, we committed criminal damage. Another one was that it was kind of working for the project because there was a kind of sense of mystery about who was putting mm. this stuff up and that was really working in local and regional and in national media as well. But another one was actually, Nina, you were talking about Gina Miller. We looked at what happened to Gina Miller mm. and we said we do not want any of that. Yeah. You know, all of us are parents of young kids. My partner was pregnant with a baby due on of all days March the 29th. Oh, gosh. Um, you get to feel a bit defensive about your homestead at that point. And we just didn't want any of that. And in fact, if you look at you know some of the comments beneath the Guido Fawkes piece, where they came for us, you know, it's a putrid cesspit of, of, of kind of abuse down there. Um, as it was, Ollie and I both worked for Greenpeace. The Greenpeace office took the kind of the most of the trolling. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, another thing, we actually we took right. down our personal social media accounts when we knew that Guido was coming for us. Now, he presented this as, like, what have we got to hide? And it was actually, we just don't want weirdo Guido faux journalists looking at pictures of us with our kids. Is that OK? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, actually, it wasn't as bad as, as, as we feared. Do you have any theories as to why outspoken woman of colour, Gina Miller, <laughs> <laughs> tends to get a rougher time of it? I think there's probably some crossover with why outspoken woman of colour, AOC... Um, <laughs> gets accused of being a socialist that needs to leave the country where the actual socialist Bernie Sanders doesn't seem to get the same abuse from Trump. Mm-hmm. We should we should look into that. <laughs> you hit on a rich scene of political analysis here. <laughs> Wait a minute. Has anyone <laughs> noticed this? Now let's have one of our regular features gone in 60 seconds. This is where one of our panel takes one of the tedious Bregster arguments that we've heard over and over and totally shuts it down, as the Express would say. Less than, destroys it in less than a minute. This week it's Nina's turn and she's doing your Uncle Ken's perennial favourite. We have to leave the protectionist EU in order to become champions of free trade. You've got 60 seconds. Go. Okay, this is just one of my favorites. It's just no. Okay, you can criticize the EU on a bunch of things like foreign policy power, but you absolutely cannot criticize them on being uh, champions of free trade in the world. They're literally the world's largest trade bloc, the biggest exporter of goods and services. And free trade is one of the friggin' founding principles of the EU single market, which is why you have 28 countries, um, very most integrated free trading area in the world, goods, capital, people and services. And of course, they also have a bunch of other deals with other countries around the world, over 40 deals, over 60 countries. And of course, the UK is going to leave all of that. And we are desperately trying to roll over the existing trade arrangements. That's what Liam Fox has been doing for the last three years. He's not been doing new trade deals. Fantastic. That's 50 seconds. Shut up, Uncle Ken. <laughs> this is I don't like the way that you just did all of that really relaxed really chilled and full of content when I had to do that thing I just sat there sweating and saying the word fuck for like <laughs> 70 seconds <laughs> I was like am I out of time now? Yeah. Smoothly done 
So, the good news is we won't have to think about the Tory leadership contest for much longer. The bad news is because we'll be enjoying the honeymoon period of <laughs> Boris Johnson, Prime Minister. Oh, God. Uh, ben and Ollie, um, are you looking forward to the, to the Johnson administration from a kind of professional point of view? Because as a, as a sort of famous opportunist whose only principle is becoming Prime Minister, has he sort of bequeathed you lots of good material? It doesn't seem like you'd have to do a lot of kind of digging in the vaults to find The American stuff. military calls this a target-rich environment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, I mean, I, for my sins, I went and bought Johnson's book, Lend Me Your Ears, and have and read the 500 pages of it. And then, you know, there's a lot of underlining in there. You know, that guy has got a rich and storied history of demanding NHS privatisation. And I think that's going to be something that we want to get out there, definitely. Um, the question for us is what, what, what value can we bring to this? What added value can we bring to this? You know, the Guardian with all its kind of, you know, um, huge resources is kind of had a series at the moment, the real Boris Johnson. So the question for Ollie and I and, and James and Will is what can we do that breaks through that other people and other media haven't done yet? Mm. Is, do you think Johnson is one of those figures like Trump, the sort of Teflon figure that can sort of shrug off anything from sort of like mockery to sort of hard evidence of, of wrongdoing. Is, is, he, is it hard to land a blow on somebody that doesn't give a shit? I think it is, and we've seen that with, look, this is a guy that's on tape arranging or advising on how to beat up a journalist. You know, this is a guy who had the problems with the police visiting his house a couple of weeks ago and seems to have ridden that relatively easily. I think the key vulnerability that Johnson has is when people manage to tag him as a typical politician. At the moment, he's winning because he is managing to project an image of an atypical politician. We've all heard the stories about before he goes on an interview, he loosens his tie, ruffles up his hair, pretends that he doesn't know his brief and bumbles through. I think one of the real vulnerabilities he's got is the habit that he has of not answering questions that Andrew Neil rumbled the other day. And I think people are beginning to think, hang on, this is a typical politician. And if, and if opponents of Johnson can land that narrative, I think that is where Johnson can really be hurt. Um, Ian, the only key development in the final debate between Johnson and Hunt was that the backstop was apparently dead and they ruled out escape hatches that they would have been impossibly lucky to get <laughs> in the first place, like me insisting that under no circumstances one I accept a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> when uh, nobody's offered me one. Um, they both sort of promised to, sort of, to throw the backstop out of a deal. Um, I mean, what does any of that mean? We know, obviously, what it means in this thing, which is basically appealing to the base. What does it mean practically? I just can't see how you'd get a deal through. Is I mean, you're basically kind of even the potential avenues. Like, I mean, yeah, we didn't think that the EU was going to offer a time limit or unilateral exit from the backstop, but at least you could have someone there going, there is a point to me going to talk to them because these are the things that I want. And we were like, well, you're not going to get them and they're still going to go for it anyway. By the, by the time... Remember, by the way, that was their position... Mere months ago, yeah. like, what, like fucking two months ago. Now, apparently, even that's betrayal of the great, you know, Brexit dream. So now there's really no point to talking at all. I suppose what they'll say, you know, what you get from Buckley is, well, you know, we want these mini deals. We want to extract the other bits, which, again, the EU aren't going to offer and blah, 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 blah. But basically, at this point, you've got to look at it and just think there's no chance we do that. Now, I think that's quite pertinent because this is going to do a bit of a time loop because I think this is the thing that I said was underpriced last week in the Ask Romaniacs bit that actually will probably be heard after this episode right here. So here I am, I'm going to say that I'm wrong in the thing yeah. that you have not heard yet, but will hear <laughs> later, but was actually recorded a week ago. Um, and that was the, I thought it was underpriced the chance of Boris coming back with a deal that people might just vote for, that he could take something that wasn't so different to May's, and if he could just go back on a few things, 
But ultimately, put the same deal in front and go, look, I'm, I'm going to sell this a bit more charismatically. And I've got the sort of fresh face thing of I've just come into power. And I thought maybe there's a chance you could get over. What, how many? A dozen, two dozen Labour MPs to do it. Those Labour MPs look like they desperately want this whole thing to go away and might be prepared for it now. And I thought that was a real live present danger, to be honest. And the fact that now it looks like any deal almost sort of out of principle is not tolerable to them means that that avenue is now closed off. Nina, the pound's at a 27-month low. Does that mean, does that suggest that business has concluded that, that, that no deal is going to happen? Do you think it's related to anticipation I, of no deal? I think business still underprices the risk of a no deal Brexit because they think that this is, you know, so catastrophic that surely, surely politicians will sort this out. I think everyone in this room, when they talk to business leaders, you're like, oh, well, it'll be fine in the end and you know, they will go to Brussels and sign on the dotted line. So I think it is massively, massively underestimated in the markets. So if there is a no-deal Brexit, expect the pound to fall even more, expect there to be a lot more chaos, especially at the borders. Um, And I cannot understand for the life of me why Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt made their very limited manoeuvring space (laughs) even smaller (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on Monday by saying that the only way they're going to pass this deal is this if they absolutely remove the backstop. That is just not going to happen. And when I talk to um, my contacts in Brussels, there is an increasing view now that it might have to be no deal because there's just no way, there is no substance on which they can negotiate. And what's more, there is no time. The EU's negotiating team has already broken up. By the time Boris Johnson is expected to have his first meeting with EU leaders on the 17th and 18th of October, there are nine working days until October the 31st, which is when the deadline ends. So nine working days for Boris Johnson to negotiate a new deal. I mean, the only thing that needs to happen for us to crash out with no deal on October the 31st at 11pm is for nothing to happen. It's the only option where it's the default option, obviously. Well, there's a, there's, there's a lot of kind of uh, musical chairs in the Tory party that we're saying that people like Jeremy Hunt, Matt Hancock, Amber Rudd. Why was this? <laughs> Alleged moderate Amber Rudd have lined up Brian Johnson. But then you've got people like Hammond who are on the outs, who are sort of like rebels in waiting, which suggests that there might be some people, some more people to kind of join uh, Grief Squadron on the um, on, on the back benches. Um, so you might have a more sycophantic cabinet, but kind of more restive back benches. Do, do you think that there would be enough Tory votes to to block, you know, to block No Deal somehow to bring down the government? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I do. Yeah. yeah, I think there's enough. I think there'll be enough when it comes down to it in the confidence. It will be tight, but I think there, there can be. Um, I think that there are, there are mechanisms to stop no deal in Parliament. Now, there's there is controversy over this, but I would just like take you back over and over. Just watch what John Burko says. Don't think about what's convention because that's not what he's playing with. He's made it pretty clear what the mechanisms are. He's made it pretty clear that MPs should use them. He will provide those vehicles, I think, for MPs to stop this thing. And I think that in the end they will. But I'm not saying that, but, you know, I'm not sleeping easily at night, you know, whistling to myself and being all happy because I'm, because it's going to be tight and there's lots of different working parts and personalities in there. But I think ultimately when it comes down to it, I don't think, you know, Parliament will be cancelled. I do think Parliament will be sitting and I do think that they will stop this.
So do you, th- do you think Big Phil is going to become a new podcast new, favorite? New Chagrapada, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you know, you've got to say, like, there's a bunch of them of the sort of of that kind of Tory figure, and not all of them are going to, you know, they're they're not all going to live up to the rhetoric that they are sometimes telling um, journalists right now. Yeah. So they talk tough and they don't always perform, but. I think enough of them will perform. Remember, the government's working majority, if the by-election next month goes the way that we think, it's going to go down to three. Three. So this is not... It's not like you don't need to climb Everest. You know what I mean? Just just fucking get to base camp, man, and you've got got enough there. Uh, Relatedly, uh, Labour MP Sarah Champion, quite a remarkable uh, performance there, is now backing No Deal, having opposed May's deal, because May hadn't added enough protections. Mm. Apparently, you have to go for No Deal, because, quote, it's poker, isn't it? (laughs) She lost all her chips, which is a great analogy, champ. Um, so you've got the leadership. With, so the, the Love Socialism meeting, the anti-Brexit meeting, had Diane Abbott, Emily Thornbury, Dawn Butler addressing it. This is the group formerly known as Love Socialism Hate Brexit, now officially known as Love Socialism Rebuild Britain Transform Europe. Oh, which, fuck which sounds like a, Is that sounds, real? It sounds like a to-do list. <laughs> in brackets, the <laughs> and, and really kind of shows that Chuck Tick aren't the only ones who can fuck up a name. <laughs> Um, but Champion says, also, she's not sure if she'd back a no-confidence vote in the government over Brexit. So is the problem, obviously, we've been concentrating for years on kind of shifting the leadership, which they've shifted. So is the problem now the sort of hardcore of, of sort of mini-hoeys, like defending the right of the traditional working class to lose their jobs? <laughs> There'll be, I mean, there, there will be a, a pretty hefty uh, Labour rebellion along those lines. Um, we've previously put those those figures at, you know, let's say 20 or so. Yeah, let's say about 20. Um, they're shifting around. Some of them are really quite alienated by the moves the leadership has made towards Remain. However, I think when you come down to something like a no conflict, that's different to... You see, these are the kind of numbers we were doing, like, what if there was a vote... Well, that happened. What if there was a vote on, you know, having another referendum? Those are the numbers there. When it comes down to a no-confidence vote in the government, I don't see how, in the name of Christ, a Labour MP sits there and goes... I'm going to vote what confidence in the government that I like officially oppose. Mm. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I know she says that now. I can't believe that that would happen. And of course, the, the abuse that they would get, the attacks that they would get, not just from the Remain wing, but from the Corbyn wing, from Momentum, for voting with the government when you're in Labour would be extraordinary. I just can't believe that they would do it. But then, you know, it is poker. So. <laughs> and, and she's not, she's not, she's, she's already admitted that she's really bad at poker. Like, catastrophically <laughs> bad. Um, so, Ben and Ollie, from in terms of your sort of targets, do you... Um, I mean, someone like sort of Sarah Champ, she's not one of the kind of big figures. She's not one of the kind of ultra-Brexiters. She's moving in, in that direction. You do try and use, I suppose, the mechanism of sort of shame, where that is a human emotion that they feel, <laughs> um, or just exposure. But, I mean, do you, do you pick your targets quite carefully? Do, you, do they have to be of a certain kind of profile are there people that you would sort of add to the to the list yeah i think profile is important i mean we we've been clear it's a brexit satori project it's a right-wing project most of our ire has faced the conservative party but you know we've run out some some good posters we put up a midway through the campaign we put up a blank jeremy corbyn because you know we felt he had nothing to say and we we invited labor activists to come down and write messages to jeremy so we you know we're we're picking targets on an ad hoc basis it's all been done through the whatsapp group but yeah profile is there i don't you know, we don't. We have no line though that says this is just about, you know, Tory MPs or you know PMs. I mean, we have we, there been Howie ones. No, we did 
Caroline Flint Caroline wants. Flint. Oh, right. But I think a key thing for us is that we punch up, not down. I mean, this manifested itself on the march to leave, actually, when, you know, a couple of days in, Farage and Tice did a runner once the cameras had left and the thing was revealed to be a numerically imploding shit show. And there were sort of <laughs> 77 bedraggled men in North Face jackets who looked like our sort of grandpas and uncles left and we were getting demands from our followers that we really rinsed them you know i want to see you know pictures of red-faced ruddy wankers now Mm -hmm. and actually we made the decision Mm -hmm. that we would only go for farage and tice on that Mm -hmm. and we would not attack the marchers now this led to a difficult situation in fact ollie and i had a slight disagreement about this when someone sent us a picture of them checking in at the local weatherspoons <laughs> in ripon which was called the unicorn hotel and i was like we have to do this we have to rinse them and i was like no we have said to ourselves we will not take the piss out of the marchers and so we let it go which i thought was really big of us uh, yeah i mean it was it was an amazing photo wasn't it maybe we should have used it i'd, I'd just come off uh, instagram actually and so and a woman had posted a message saying, you know, I'm I, I'm proud of my husband. He's been marching today and I, I really feel strongly that he's done the right thing. He, he, she was getting a lot of abuse on the Instagram messages for that and we'd come in to kill that, kill that criticism. And, and actually came back and said, look, I think you are, you are right to feel proud of your husband. He's gone out today to do something that, that, that he feels strongly about. And maybe if more people stood up to do something they feel strongly about, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in this mess. Mm. So I, I'm, you know, I'm reinforcing what Ben is saying yeah. for us. Mm. Picking who we go after in a comment section or on a billboard is about, it's got to be about punching up. I think down. our anger was reserved for the, you know, taxpayer funded media establishment figure, Nigel Farage, who, who conceived this thing with Tice and then as soon as it looked like a failure, he, he did a runner. Mm-hmm. You know, and the people actually, they pay 50 quid each to be on that march. And I think we felt they were abandoned by them. And Will, who was one of our number, who was following the march at the time with, with, with the drone and, and the vans, shouted out, like, where's Nigel today? And they go, he's, he's doing his LBC show. It's like, you know, so he put his, you know, his LBC show before marching with those people. And we just thought that was unconscionable. Hmm. Yeah, they always talk about, you know, they love talking about themselves in military terms, like during World War Two, And you just think you couldn't even stay on a kind of on a march that you'd organised. I don't know if you saw... I don't Guy, imagine you holding up well under fire. Guy, <laughs> Guy Verhofstadt um, tweeted at one point, uh, Hi, Nigel Farage, it's great to see you in Brussels, but I thought you were meant to be marching, you know, from Huddersfield to somewhere else today. You're a bit like, um, you know, Melchett in Blackadder, letting everyone else, kind of, you know, do the hard work while yeah, abandoning yeah. them yeah. after, you know, marching for two miles or whatever. Um, I'm fine, just, just, just to round off Tory chat... Um, there's talk that, that Johnson is thinking of uh, going for an early election while Corbyn is still uh, in place, presumably thinking that he's, he's, he's eminently beatable. The polls are all over the shop. Labour leads most of them on aggregate. There's some, obviously some shocking ones where they, they, they're not, but overall they are. Would that, be, um, would that be a kind of wise strategy? It seems like we've had a Tory prime minister calling an early election in order to crush Corbyn. <laughs> didn't go well would he would he do it again he's obviously going to want to do that because he's we think about to have a working majority of three um and anyone in that position is going to want to not have a working majority of three um and he's going to want to use the fact that he has some kind of fresh-faced appeal of you know someone's new to come in almost everyone gets a bounce in that scenario they'll be treated quite nicely by the press at the beginning because the lobby are just terrible at that they, they will always be very nice to someone that just comes in um, he, his problem is the sequencing. You know, he thinks, and he's probably right to think this, that if, if the Tories go into a general election before they've secured Brexit, then they'll be destroyed. 
what of course he hasn't quite realised is that if there's a no deal Brexit and you go to the country after that fucking shit show, see how well that works out for you as well. So there's really no point at which you can mm. insert the election where it's going to work out very well for him. But he understands that he needs to do it soon. I'd be amazed if... Well, frankly, I'd be pretty amazed if he makes it as Prime Minister to, to the next point of an election, which would be 2022. Um, and I don't think he'll do that without having an election. He'll be desperately looking to have it somehow. But the scenario, I don't think, will ever permit him to. I think that actually, whatever way you try to cut up the pie, Boris Johnson is screwed. Because if... <laughs> yeah! yeah I, I mean, this, this, is, this is the thing I find so astonishing about the Conservative Party right now. I mean, there's just no strategic foresight, right? It's always like, what's the next step? Not looking at, you know, what would be happening literally in three months' time. So if he does a 180 and asks for an extension before the deadline runs out, he's screwed because he hasn't delivered the Brexit. If he a general election is triggered and the Conservatives actually run on a platform for a no-deal Brexit. I mean, this is the party of economic stewardship, right? And they win that election and no-deal Brexit happens. So he has a mandate to do that. He's screwed. I mean, once you enter into no-deal Brexit territory, the political chips are off the table in a big way. I think the miscalculation he's making is that he thinks he is Teflon like Trump so that these people will always stick with him because it's the cult of Boris. And that's true for a certain amount of the population or specifically a certain amount of the Conservative Party. But I think for the population at large, it's more that they follow the cult of Brexit, not Boris. So he will become the latest victim to be crushed by the Brexit kind of myth when it turns out that no deal is a disaster and then he will be held responsible for that. Dragged to the great Brexit wicker man. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! No! <laughs> so, he's going to go down as one of the worst PMs in history. Pretty soon. Pretty soon. <laughs> Meanwhile, it, it's not all the white-knuckle excitement of Hunt versus Johnson. There are other things happening in the world. Some of them are a bit boring, but they're quite important. It's time for Boring But Important of the Week, and it's Ian's turn. He likes, He loves things that are boring and important. Um, what, have, what have you got and why is it important? Um, I've got Ursula von der Leyen, which is not, it's not really boring. It is important. Um, so, a communist. <laughs> right, yeah, OK. So who's, who's now um, sort of in charge of the commission after scraping through a vote uh, by nine votes, I think it was. There's a lot of things to say about this. Um, so I'll try and keep it short. The first, the first thing is it's going to be hard for her to patch together any kind of working majority in that place, given how tough that vote was. She clearly, she clearly tried to. She basically thought she could bank the sort of European People's Party, the centre right grouping, and then went out and appealed to the Greens and you know put together this, this package of a bunch of environmental stuff with some gender moves. It's actually pretty good stuff. It's probably the most ambitious stuff we've seen anyone coming into the Commission sort of say. But that cost her a bunch of the votes on on the right. So because it's a secret ballot. We don't know who went which way, but it looks tight. It looks like she can't rely on people. That's going to be a struggle for her. I think the important thing here also is just structurally and almost constitutionally what's going on in Europe. So there was this thing called the Spitzenkandidaten thing, which is basically was it's about five years old. It is it's from 2014. And it was when the parliament started to take a bit more control over who was leading the commission. And they'd managed to get this convention in place. They're going like, well, the largest group has put forward someone. That someone should be considered the person that would lead the commission. Now, that has fallen apart because the EVV... Um, 
put forward a, like a man who was he was a sort of charisma vortex. It's like wherever he went, you just thought like I can feel the blood sinking from my fucking face. The typical grey men in suits in Brussels putting forward, but grey men in suits and off you go. This then didn't come out of that process. This came out through basically a fucking you know this sort of late room stitch up that Brussels sort of does. And so the parliament has actually been pulled back. It's lost some of the power. And that's really un- unlike parliaments to accept that kind of shit. Parliaments, all of them, grasp for more power, secure it and keep it. And in this case, it's falling back a bit. That's, I think, a really... It's an unfortunate sign, even though the manner in which they've used the power has been deeply suboptimal. I, like, I have to say, you look at this stuff and you think... You know when we talk about the Remain and Reform thing and blah, blah, blah? You have to look at it and think, like, when we talk about Remain and Reform, this is the kind of shit that we should talk about reforming. I, I've got a feeling Nina's going to disagree with me, which would be exciting. But like, honestly, there is no reason for this position not to be directly elected mm. by people. Now, the reason that it's not, of course, is because Eurosceptics would be the ones to kick against that. They don't want to show that there's a European demos. They don't want to give that kind of power to those figures. But ultimately, when you look at this stuff, that figure should be elected and the way this was done from the votes before to the to the late night stitch up it, it is pretty drippy stuff and i have to say i'm, I'm rather rather de- depressed by it well one thing that's worth noting is that the entire spitzenkandidat system so the idea that that's how you say it so the, uh, this, this, this is the idea that the European Commission president is going to be uh, a leader of like the biggest grouping in the European Parliament. So it's more democratic. It's a German idea. Do you know who rallied really, 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 really hard against this idea in 2014? So much that he was had a big veto with the European leaders at the European Council Summit, David Cameron. Mm. Britain was Britain, one of the countries who, while we were still, you know, on course to be in the EU and reform it from within, was complaining often about how dem- undemocratic it was really opposed the idea of the Spitzenkandidat system. So now, obviously, we've gone back to the way that they've traditionally done it, which is political manoeuvring, you know, backdoor kind of appointment, which is another thing that Britain really hates about this. So you, you can't have it both ways, right? So if you try to make the process more transparent and democratic, you're against it. And um, when it happens the way that it's always happened, then you're also against it. I mean, the second point to make is that the European Commission, I mean, they are the EU civil service. Right. So there is a point to say that these bureaucrats should be appointed by the European leaders. We've got Ben Stewart and Ollie Knowles from Led by Donkeys with us this week. The gorilla poster hangers and satirists who've helped keep our spirits up over the last few months. Um, So you you talked about how it started in January. I thought it had been going longer. So did it did it catch light really, you know, almost instantly? Uh, the it first one we put up was David Cameron. That was Ollie and I um, went out. It was on the A10 in London, actually opposite the Birdcage Pub in Stoke Newington, where we mm-hmm. came out with the idea. And that did we? I mean, I remember we walked up to the pub to have a pint after that, and uh, we thought it looked amazing. We, you know, the, the visual impact of having a tweet up that big was really good. But we said, look, we have to be prepared to get seven retweets off this, and no one really care. And 24 hours later, we had sort of 3,000 followers and we thought we were onto something. So actually, we hadn't planned to do anything for a week, but we went out the next night and did David Davis in Clapton. Then the Sunday, we did Michael Gove in Romford. And then the Tuesday after that, which was the night of the first meaningful vote, where she went down by 202, we did four in a night in Dover, the kind of front line of Brexit. And that was the night it took off, didn't it? It just, ex- well, the next morning when we tweeted out, it just exploded. 
Yeah, really huge. I mean, it was it was a long night. We put up four posters. We got Dominic Robb's quote about not understanding the importance of the Dover-Calais crossing. <laughs> In was, Dover. We decided, you know, even if we get you know, arrested tonight, we're getting that one up. That was the first poster. And uh, so we got that out front really good. And then, yeah, it was, it was a long night. Finished about two o'clock. But I guess by that point, we had enough of a following for that material to really fly. And through that week, it just it really took off, didn't it? And of course, then the, then the crowdfunder came. We had lots of people coming to us saying, look, can we give you some money to do more of this? And we'd been a bit reluctant, but on the back of Dover, yeah, it was time to, to press go on that. Was any of it sort of, you know, hair-raising, whether you're just like worried about kind of, you know, angry Brexiters shaking their fists or um, the Rosers? Yeah, it, well, I mean, in Dover, actually, it was the first time we'd really kind of got out, out of London and it felt very different. I mean, the first thing we noticed when we got out the car was that the streets were just silent. So, you know, there's just not the London noise on the street. So even untying the, the ladder from the roof rack, we were, we were, we were, we were nervous. Wow. And, yeah, you know, um, Dover, is, Dover is, is leave country. It's, it's, it's deprived. It's a, it was a different place to work. So, yeah, we were a little nervous about that. Felt a bit exposed. I mean, there was yeah. no denying the fact that we were Remainers doing kind of 18 square metre propaganda posters. We were saying at the time, it felt like, <laughs> yeah. felt like we might as well stand there with blue t-shirts with the yellow stars on singing Ode to Joy. It was pretty obvious <laughs> what we were doing. But actually what the second poster we did was on a really high site about 10 metres up on the side of an MOT centre and we got up there, we were about five minutes from finishing it and suddenly a guard dog burst through and started yapping at us which set off the floodlight so there's this massive whoosh and we were bathed in light above the Kong Sing Chinese takeaway and everyone came out to watch us doing it. <laughs> that was a bit of a hairy moment, wasn't it? It was and I mean I, I, I came to this phrase of kind of owning the space. We talked about looking, you know, official and we had fluoro jackets on and I remember being at the top of this ladder and just hoarsely whispering now, own the space, <laughs> we're going to be fine. And, uh, Have you we accidentally were. joined the Gilets Jaunes now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Because like um, I saw, first saw your billboards um, like in, in the flesh in London's trendy Islington where I live. Um, but also you're talking about Dover and obviously they've appeared in, in leave areas. How do you kind of... Because they seem to have a twin purpose. They kind of fire up Remainers, but also they, they've got a different effect, kind of pointing out hypocrisy to leavers in leave areas. Um, did you did you really kind of once you got going sort of really strategize your the sort of map and where certain posters would work best? Um, yeah, uh, I mean we thought that the the Rob Dover poster would work best in Dover, but generally actually <laughs> like Lebo Donkeys was best understood in the early stage at least actually less as a poster campaign as a local and regional media campaign. What we were doing we thought was trying to create political street theatre in leave areas that would allow local and regional newspapers to report these quotes on our terms. And we, our analysis, for what it's worth, is that the Remain campaign, I'm not going to slag off the Remain campaign, had a really difficult job, but hadn't done a particularly good job of creating passion and street theatre in leave areas. Now, we, Ollie and I work for Greenpeace, the other two don't, but, you know, we are, I guess, experienced that through direct action, creating political speech, street theatre that speeds up the national conversation and allows the media to talk about relatively boring issues um, in news stories. And that was the whole point of it. You know, if a poster didn't get a local or regional news article attached to it that said, look at what Michael Gove said compared to your observed reality as we go towards the second meaningful vote, then in a sense it hadn't succeeded. So it was a way to kind of hack the local media. We didn't expect it to take off quite you know, as as successfully as, as it did, to be honest. Yeah, my my hope with the project is, I mean, I think we've been a morale boost to the Remain campaign, and that's great. Um, a small part um, played in that. 
my my real hope with the project is that in putting these posters up in leave areas, we have provided people with an opportunity to really you know, reappraise these politicians' words against the reality which is unfolding. And I think in, a, in an information overloaded age where very often you're, you're given this information but you're told how to think, it comes with a long commentary, I, I hope somewhere, and it's hard to measure, but I hope somewhere that we've, yeah, we've created space for people, you know, out walking the dog, out with their families to, to look at these words and, and, and hold them up and, and reappraise them. And that, that for me, is, I, I hope, is one of the big values of the project, which means it's properly outside of the Brexit Westminster you know, political bubble. I think that's our, our response to that. And, and certainly in terms of where we go next, I, yeah, I, I want to get lots more information like that up in leave areas where I just don't see it getting through. Mm-hmm. Because you have um, some thoughtful critics like Stephen Bush at the New Statesman who, who sort of thinks that the campaign ends up helping Brexiters by amplifying misinformation because a lot of the people who see it and certainly the people that you're, you're talking about don't really sort of care about inconsistency or hypocrisy. Um, so, that, so that line is that it kind of, it's sort of, it's sort of self-defeating. Is that, I mean, you obviously thought this through. Was, was, that, was that a worry where you just thought, am I just basically publicising yeah, we, we thought about that and we talked about it and what we did, we put up the first suite of posters and then uh, one of our number who was a photographer went out and began speaking to local people and saying like, what is your emotional reaction to this poster and what we found out is that people understood exactly what we were doing they might not have agreed with us but our faith in the British people to understand that this was satire was, was well founded and I would go back to the point I was making earlier which is, you know, there's a limit to the number of people that see these posters in situ and really change their mind. The, the, the game for us was creating street theatre that got us coverage mm. and 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 I think if you look at the coverage that we got where we were mediating what was being said and our quotes were being provided etc then that's really where it broke through and actually I've spoken to Stephen about that and um yeah I did you know I made that point mm. so is there is there any way to is the only way to gauge their effectiveness by talking to so it's basically it's by if you get local media if you get media coverage and the reactions of people that you're, you're talking to. I think there's another thing as well. We, um, we were frustrated by the extent to which these figures were doing media in January and February and weren't being asked about their previous statements. Mm. And success for us looked like Liam Fox or Michael Gove going on the Today programme or Channel 4 News and being asked about the number of trade deals we were supposedly going to sign or we hold all the cards and that kind of thing. Now, I can't tell you what was in Emily Maitlis's mind or John Humphrey's mind, where they threw those quotes back at them or Michelle Hussein. But certainly we felt we saw an uptick in... Um, the number of times those Brexiteers were asked for to account for their previous statements. And that was one of our objectives. You know, I mean, it's not rocket science. It was incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. to see the likes of Gove going out there saying it might be that we can't export food anymore compared to what he'd said three years previously, which was, I can guarantee that Brexit will have absolutely no effect mm-hmm. on our ability to export food. So, you know... Um, that poster was up outside Billingsgate Fish Market. Did the fact that it was there mean that he was asked about that? No, it's the fact that we managed to accrue 200,000 Twitter followers and managed to amplify it in kind of political commentator, anti-Brexit and Brexit Twitter, and therefore made that quote famous a little bit. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there is that tradition, isn't it, of of, of street theatre where it's kind of working on the street level, but it's also... You're trying to change the, the you know, the, the media conversation. Totally. Because it was certainly a maddening thing where people just wouldn't be caught. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be called out. 
You'd just be saying like shouting at the radio, going, "Remember that thing that he said." <laughs> I suppose now, actually, chaos, chaos with Ed Miliband. That actually became Ed Miliband's Twitter handle at one point. <laughs> that's like, yeah, that's become kind of like one of the most famous, famous tweets of the uh, of the modern it's era. Twenty three thousand retweets now. <laughs> Is it annoying sometimes though when when they've actually said something and it's not a tweet and you have to put it in the tweet? You're, you're in, you've got the tweet format and you have to put underneath wasn't a tweet no i mean we had a long discussion about about whether we should do that and we didn't want to be disingenuous but we felt the tweet format was a tweet is uncompromising it's declarative it's visually arresting it's the shape of a billboard and so we were thinking you know do we have to um, limit ourselves to tweets or can we use their quotes and design them up as tweets as well um, Jacob Rees-Mogg tried to push back by saying I wasn't on Twitter until 2011 and therefore this is fake news but what we found is you know as long as we've put that caveat on it, mm. I, think it I think it's fair game it was not a, not a defence to so say I didn't tweet it I actually said it in the House of Commons you know? <laughs> <laughs> fair game, fair game. <laughs> you got us yeah. um, so presumably if we get no deal there will be uh, lots of billboard space available um, and you, you said you were kind of taking a breath and then sort of planning what you were going to do next as we go into this period in which Boris Johnson is meant to negotiate a deal in nine working days. Um, so can you, what, what can you say about how you would like to sort of expand this or kind of develop the idea? Well, um, we, we are, you know, there's no easy way out of this mess. I guess we are all reluctant second referendumers. And I think for us, a lot of what we want to do is... Um, keep the idea and support for a second referendum alive. I think there will be a lot we can do to attack the legitimacy of, of Boris Johnson through that period and beyond mm. October the 31st, and particularly where it relates to, you know, the issues that people really care about and are concerned about things like the like the NHS. So, you know, there's 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 a lot we can do with that. I think some of the bits we've most liked about the campaign are where we've actually involved people and created discussions and dialogue in the street that we, we did the huge banner in parliament square on the march to leave that was a great moment because it just you know it involved lots of people it was highly participative you know i mentioned earlier the Jeremy corbyn poster but we had a lovely moment when we did that where we'd invited these activists to come and um you know write messages to Jeremy corbyn we had cyclists stopping we had truck drivers shouting out their window and hooting their horn for a moment we had like a re you know real dialogue a, a, a thing happening on on brexit in the street and i think if we can do more to create that discussion and and mm. um, those moments. I think that will be a contribution. And sure, it, you know, it will mm. only be a contribution. But I'd like to think we can do some of that. I think, no, I think something I'm really interested in is 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 attacking the legitimacy of No Deal. I think we've kind of we've just all accepted, you know, in a way that um, what happened between December and March, which was that Brexit became No Deal. But actually, if you go back, and we're actually doing this, if you download every tweet, every speech, every quote, every radio interview, etc., by Boris Johnson between the date where he came out for Brexit and June the 23rd, 2016, he mentioned, articulated, made the case for no deal precisely zero times. And that's really important because they're claiming a mandate from the referendum for a kind of Brexit that was never mentioned. And I think, you know, at the moment, we haven't done enough to speak to leavers about about that and, and make sure that people understand that, they, this, that a case was never made for no deal before. 
as Ollie said, I'm a bit of a reluctant second referendum. It took me a while to get to that position, but I think it is a democratic outrage to, to claim that no deal equals Brexit. And for me, that's where the kind of the mandate of a second referendum comes from. And I think it's so there will be a fight in the court of public opinion. So if we accept that the kind of no deal contingent is about 25 to a third of the population, and then you have about a third who's like remain under any circumstances, that part of the population who is not like, you know, they don't look at the Brexit party MEPs in Brussels and think this is great, you know, when they turn their backs um, when the parliament opens. Those people, and I'm thinking specifically about people like my boyfriend's parents who are conservative voters, lifelong conservative voters, would never vote Labour, but now say if there's a general election, they're going to vote for the Lib Dems because they don't want a no-deal Brexit. They're not the loudest, but somebody needs to speak to them. I think there's a swing vote there that definitely is up for grabs. Yeah. We've come to the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule, uh, an infinitely capacious container which can fit almost anything inside by the use of alternative arrangements, um, <laughs> led by donkeys. Uh, what do you want to put in in our hidden depository of things we'll miss if we ever leave the EU? We're streeting put Kate Hoey in there last week, so <laughs> it's, it's getting dangerous. Um, well, when we were asked to think about this, it was something that we would miss or that we would need post-Brexit. So we thought we would it would be a book entitled 1001 Things That We Were Promised from Brexit, like an almanac. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, would ha- it would be incredibly well-indexed um, and we would send it to all broadcasters when we opened up the time capsule and they would look through it and be able to compare any claim about what Brexit meant in 2024 or 2025 to what was actually promised. So it would be like the sports almanac that Martin McFly had in Back to the Future 2, making him the most powerful <laughs> person in town. This would make these journalists the most powerful journalists in Westminster because they would be immediately able to challenge our Brexit overlords when they said, we are now in the sunlit uplands and it's exactly as we promised it would be. I think you're maybe the first person who, who's taken the whole time capsule future concept seriously because <laughs> obviously Kate Hoey would die in there <laughs> and freedom of movement isn't really a physical it's object, not a thing so. <laughs> so this is good this has raised the bar can I shamelessly add something to the box mm. um, so this I don't know how this is going to work it's my, I've never had a book coming out before so this could be a sh- this is shameless and appalling but I'm going to go with it <laughs> I want to add the led by donkeys book to this box oh, as wow. a record of what we what we've done and it's out on 30 1st of October and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. Oh, that's awesome, Sweet. guys. Good work. So what, what kind of what kind of book is it? Is it like a kind of big it's, coffee table kind of... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, a small kind of coffee table book. It'll be lots of pictures, lots of billboards, some of the big stunts we pulled, but it's also the story of what we did and how we pulled it off as four dads on a WhatsApp group. Start, <laughs> it sort of starts off with Ollie and I up a ladder um, in Stoke Newington with David Cameron's face wrapped around us as we were trying <laughs> to pace the damn thing up, not knowing what we're doing. And sort of going through to, you know, this kind of Parliament Square with a 800 square meter David Davis tweets banner with us looking up and thinking there are two helicopters in the air one of them is the BBC and the other is the led by donkeys helicopter this has been a mad 10 weeks (laughs) (laughs) this is good that's excellent promo we're allowing that in Um, and here's listener Ed Beveridge with this week's foreign language clip L'erreur la plus catastrophique pendant les négociations à Bruxelles était d'envoyer un navet vers les travaux d'un homme arrêtons la folie Annulons le Brexit. Vive la révolution. That means the most catastrophic error in the negotiations in Brussels was sending a turnip to do a man's work. Stop the madness. Cancel Brexit. Up the revolution. <laughs> that's, that's, I think that should be the new name of the group, Love Socialism. It's now called Love Socialism. Stop the madness. Cancel Brexit. Up the revolution. <laughs> the independent group. 
formerly known as the independent group. <laughs> Send us your European language clips, record something on your phone in a quiet room and email to us at info at romaniacs.com. If you're using your partner's laptop, please ask permission first because shouting that can be heard through walls spoils the audio. <laughs> and that's the end of the show. Uh, ben and Ollie from Led by Donkeys, thanks very much for joining us. Best of luck. Don't fall off any ladders. Now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by the legendary Corner Shop. You can get a free download of the track from their website, ampleplay.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Uh, it's a big shout-out from me to Amy Hoy, Dan Ganderton, Tim Eustace, Joseph Crinigan, Richard Morty, Michael McCluskey... Jerry McNally, Stephen Pilkington, Dominic Dice, and Jason Pittock. And vielen Dank from me to Bridget Wyatt, Alistair Payne James, Stephen McNair, Dan Forries, Philippa King, Nicola Hepworth, Eric Nolander, Ian Holden, Corey Maxwell, and Andrew Forden. And finally, thanks for me to Kim, Jim, Rob Newton, Ashley Kovas, Noel Rum, Cornelia Sanders, Leonie Cannon, James Stevenson, Leonie Schmid, it's the Leonie Week, and John Lish. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Nina Schick and Ian Dunt. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Sophie Black, at Soho Radio. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.